0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
2: Tuesday morning, the 20th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. A bomb exploded yesterday in County Fermanagh. Police in Northern Ireland believe that the Continuity IRA or the new IRA were responsible for the attack which was intended to kill and injure members of the British Army and PSNI officers. Security forces were following up on the discovery of a hoax bomb discovered on Sunday when what was described as an exceptionally loud explosion was heard nearby. The booby trap bomb is the second bomb attack in just over three weeks and shows what the PSNI says is the increased capability of dissident groups. The Deputy Chief Constable Stephen Martin also spoke about the political vacuum in the North and how that is adding to tensions in the community. The bomb delivers a deadly wake-up call on Brexit. That's the headline on the front page of today's Irish Independent. The fear is of violence increasing if it's a hard Brexit resulting in a hard Border Right now, there is an insurance policy to prevent returning to a hard border, but the UK says if that policy, the backstop, is not dropped, it will leave without a deal, and that would result in in a hard border. So, what would the result of a hard border be? Well, it would guarantee that the violence continues. The only question is what scale that violence would be on. This is according to a new report on uh, the results of a hard border which has uh, been commissioned by Senator Mark Daly and has also uh, been uh, written by two UNESCO chairs and an American diplomat. daily the rapporteur for this report is on the line and a very good morning to you senator and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the program this morning it would seem as though you are damned if you do and damned if you don't if you like in the sense uh, that as things stand there's no option uh, but to go back to a hard border
0: well i mean that depends on whether or not the british government stand by the backstop which they negotiated and they're repudiating that and they're doing a u-turn on the backstop which by the way was their idea and their, their negotiating team with the EU um, put that in place as part of the agreement. Mm. And the research report that I did <clears throat> looks at the issue of what would happen in the event of a return to a hard border, and as you said, two UNESCO chairs who are experts in preventing violent extremism, they would have worked with different governments around the world on how to prevent young people who live in disadvantaged areas from being radicalised, to use of phrase uh, that we're very familiar with when it comes to uh, Muslim terrorism, but it's an issue that is also relevant when it comes to Northern Ireland. And what the two UNESCO chairs, Professor Dolan and Brennan have discovered is there's a loss of memory of harm in the agreement generation. They're too young. Yeah, they they would have been born just before, since the Good Friday Agreement, and they have been given, as Professor Dolan and Brennan point out, a romanticised view of the Troubles. Mm. Uh, And this is in both communities. Um, So you have um, dissidents in, as we've seen in the Craigan, a lot of young people involved in rioting on a weekly basis, which goes unreported in in the Irish media. um, Those young kids are being mobilised by paramilitary leaders for their own ends.
2: And And what do you mean by a romanticised interpretation of the Troubles? Uh, Do they see getting involved in paramilitary organisations as something that's glamorous.
0: Yeah, and they see it as, as uh, having standing in your community because that's, that the, in their community, people who are paramilitaries or ex-prisoners are... are looked up to by some in the community and we see that in the, in the, the, the loyalist community as well where you had uh, this romanticised view of the troubles where you could be a member of the RUC or the British Army or the UDR or you could be in a paramilitary and again you could have standing in your community uh, because you were standing up for your community so it's happening on both sides and the research initially uh, was part of uh, one of the recommendations of the Good Friday Agreement Committee uh, where it recommended looking at the issues that would have to be done in advance of a referendum on a United Ireland, but obviously because of Brexit, the scope of the research expanded to look at well, what would happen in Northern Ireland in the event of a return to a hard border, and it is just an issue of scale uh, in terms of violence. The 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 UNESCO's chair's view is that there will be a return to violence. The issue is scale. So if you have Republican uh, paramilitaries attacking mm. border posts that are put up as a result of our border.
2: Absolutely, then you, yeah. then you're,
0: mm. then you're going to have a return, retaliation, uh, mm. a retaliation mm. by mm. the loyalists, and mm. then you're back to where you were.
2: And like are they wrong? Uh, and I mean, both sides. Uh, uh, the young people uh, who may end up uh, with Republican dissidents or the young people who may end up with union dissidents or, or, or groups, uh, whatever way you want to describe them, are they wrong? And if they are wrong, why are they different to anybody who's ever got involved in an armed conflict?
0: Well, I mean, of course they're wrong. They're incorrect. I mean, they're, they're taking up arms and they have no mandate and they have no support for it. But this is to advance their own agenda in the, in, in some communities. It's basically to keep a, a drug and criminal empire going, and that's as plain and simple as it is, under the guise of protecting your community or advancing the cause mm. uh, of your community. But what it really boils down to is an issue of deprivation, and these kids who are living in disadvantaged communities, they have no education opportunities, uh, they have no employment opportunities, and therefore they have no hope. And what is happening is they have been brought into these organisations and are being given something uh, to do and this is what they are going to be doing. And the the, the, the mm. tragedy of this is it's preventable, because, first of all, if the backstop is in place, there's no return to a hard border. But that doesn't mean that the underlying issue, the deprivation and the poverty in those communities, that has to be tackled. And that is why we are, at the situation we're in, is because of the deprivation and the poverty. Both kids are vulnerable. Um, those uh, adults, young adults, are are being utilised by paramilitary
2: leaders. But insisting on on the backstop, as we've been hearing, the UK have said, if the backstop isn't dropped, we leave without a deal if that's what it comes to. We want a deal, but if that's what it comes to, we leave without a deal and that would inevitably result in a hard border. So if we insist on the backstop, could it not result in the very thing it's designed to try and prevent a hard border?
0: Yeah, I mean, the backstop is put in there now because if... It isn't put in there now. There will be a return to border checks at some stage. Because if the British believed that there was technological solutions available that would prevent infrastructure or any hard border, then they would have no problem with the backstop. And mm. the reason they know that is their own report.
2: But they're saying Two that they ago, can't do a deal with a backstop. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, has been rhyming off his, his mantra again, how it was rejected three times by the British Parliament. It's not something that they can agree to. So unless it's dropped, they'll leave without a deal, if that's what it comes to, and the result will be a hard border.
0: Yeah, I mean, Boris Johnson was the Foreign Secretary who negotiated the backstop. Um, so the fact that the Parliament rejected it is, is, is Britain's problem. The Ireland's problem is that without the backstop, there will be a return to a hard border at mm. some stage. And that's where negotiations come down to the point where decisions have to be made and the British government have to make the decision. If they want the chaos that will ensue as a result of not agreeing an exit strategy, which they negotiated, then that, that will be the result for them. But for us, the issue is, do we uh, take a return to hard border in a matter of weeks or do we wait a couple of years but either way if the British do not accept the backstop then there's a return to the hard border at some stage
2: and Republicans I suppose young impressionable Republicans perhaps uh, may take up on exactly the argument you've been making there and say the British Welsh done a deal the occupation continues there is only one response and that is an armed response that there's a, a cause there that needs to be fought
0: that and that, But the issue really is if the British government stand by the backstop, then there will be no return to the hard border. But like that, if they don't, then there will be a return to the border at some mm. stage.
2: And so, if they do, I mean, if they do accept the backstop, uh, well, then they could be accused of selling out the unionist community and breaking up the union. Uh, and that could result in trouble, too.
0: Well, I mean, the the 60% of people in Northern Ireland would accept the backstop. And the people who are not accepting the backstop happens to be the DUP, who don't have majority support in Northern Ireland. In fact, all the political parties in Northern Ireland, the majority of them, the Alliance Party and the UUP, accept some form of Mm -hmm. of, of a backstop. So it really is down to an issue of uh, circumstances colliding to a point where the backstop is not being... accepted even though it's the most practical outcome for all concerned but the the real consequences for us on this island is that the british government not accepting the backstop which they negotiated means that a new generation the agreement generation will be plunged in uh, to a renewal of the troubles and they're aware of it that's why i did the report that's why mm-hmm. i got not only two unesco chairs but president obama's senior policy advisor on countering violent extremism, the first U.S. diplomat appointed by the U.S. State Department on that issue and advised the French government, the Belgian government, and the Kenyan government, and others around the world on how to prevent young people uh, being exploited and radicalised. And he wrote for the report on what needs to be done. But, like, in terms of what needs to be done, it's about poverty and p- prevention of people uh, being getting into the grasp of Uh, paramilitaries, but you can only do that by long-term engagement in terms of education opportunities and employment opportunities, that is not what we can do between now and the 31st of October. What we have to do between now and the 31st of October is make sure that the European Union says to Britain, if you want to leave, you must leave on the terms that you negotiated with the European Union, or you have to leave without a deal, and there are consequences for that. And, uh, and that, of course, will lead on to the next discussion, mm. which, of course, the Taoiseach Leo Baradkar brought up when he was in Belfast, that in the event of there being um, a no-deal Brexit, uh, then the union would be under question. And that, of course, brings up the issue of a referendum in United Ireland, which was the other part of the, the report mm. that we were doing, that if you rush a border, poll without all the, the the preparation that would be needed well in advance, and the lesson of Brexit is you don't hold a referendum without figuring out all of the issues... Uh, then you have another risk of a return to violence and the issue again is scale because of course you have loyalists uh, who, are, who are using young people in their community for their own end. So it is lit- literally like a catch-22 situation but the most important thing at the moment is that the backstop uh, remains in the agreement and that the British government sign up to it.
2: Right, uh, which Is not going to happen, according to the Prime Minister, uh, whether he's wrong uh, in taking that position or not. That is his position.
0: Well, I mean, I suppose the thing about that research report is with a return to violence in Northern Ireland, people will die. He now knows that if he doesn't sign up to the
2: backstop... People may have died yesterday, though. I mean, we don't need... Absolutely.
0: What you're talking about now is an increase in scale. Because over the last number of years, Northern Ireland has had a low-intensity conflict where you've had PSNI officers being targeted, Uh, you've had attempted bombings, as you saw... But as
2: the PSNI pointed out yesterday, anybody could have died under this attack because it happened on a main road.
0: Oh, yeah. But but that is an issue of poverty and deprivation in communities that takes long-term engagement, and that is neglect by politicians in Northern Ireland because Stormont isn't up and running, and those issues are not being tackled at a regional level Mm. in Northern Ireland. So, therefore that is a fault of politicians, because if kids are given education opportunities, housing opportunities, Mm. and employment opportunities, they don't get involved.
2: Okay, Um, but do you understand the point that uh, I'm making anyway, which is that Uh, There's all these fears about Brexit and a hard border and a return to violence in such a scenario. But here we are already uh, with bomb attacks now uh, every other week uh, in the last few weeks, uh, without meaning to exaggerate it. uh, But uh, we've also had a civilian death uh, by way of Lyra McKee in Derry.
0: Yeah, and that is the underlying issue of poverty and deprivation that is not being tackled and that is kids being exploited and radicalised. And you see the exact same thing in the loyalist community, where loyalist paramilitaries using the, the cloak of representing their community uh, to keep their drug and criminal empires going are doing exactly the same thing. But the only way that can be tackled is by politicians doing their jobs in Northern Ireland to get Northern Ireland working for everybody, and especially the most disadvantaged people. But what we, what we are seeing now is an escalation, of dissident activity, and that needs to be tackled in mm. of itself in a security And response.
2: And those those who are joining those dissident groups aren't trying to get into criminality, are they? They, they? they would liken themselves to the 1916 martyrs, would they not?
0: In some areas, yes, but in other areas, it's just used as a cloak, uh, and it, that has been seen in research. Um, across Northern Ireland, and they would like to portray. And paramilitaries would like to portray themselves as, you know, carriers of the flame. But in reality, they're not. They're actually, they're in most instances to keep their their um, operations going. They would be involved in ATM uh, robberies. They're involved in all sorts of criminality. They can justify it to mm. themselves, but it's unjustifiable. But what we must learn is the lesson of 50 years ago is that. If you put back infrastructure, yeah. if you bring targets into the area, mm. then they're going to be attacked. Everybody and, can see that. And, and, everybody knows it. And the
2: provost and had to fund their campaign. Them. They had to have money to buy the guns with, and it was post offices uh, predominantly that they'd have raided. Uh, but that's the nature of paramilitaries, is it not?
0: Oh, absolutely. But it's mm. criminality, like you know, that's what it is. So you know, what we're looking at now is we have a road ahead of us, and there are two there are two paths to take, and if. And the European Union are also aware of the the issue of a return to violence if there's infrastructure. And that's why the Irish government have, and everybody has supported this policy, have insisted that there be no return to a hard border because there are serious consequences, life-threatening consequences for people on this island, which, Um, of course, Boris Johnson doesn't care about because we've, we've, we've heard what his father had to say about the issue. But, like, in reality, we have to make sure that there's no return to a hard border on this island. But
2: despite how high high the stakes are, uh, it is a a question of who will blink first, is it not?
0: That's what negotiations are about, but bear Mm. in mind, they negotiated the backstop. The British government negotiated the backstop on their own behalf. They're the ones that came up with the idea Mm. of not only that there would be no divergence between the north and the south of Ireland, uh, in terms of trade and the single market. Uh, when it was, was agreed, no
2: it needed uh, to be ratified by the Parliament, and three times it's been put to the Parliament, and three times the Parliament has rejected it.
0: Yeah, and that's a British problem, but they, bear in mind, they negotiated this agreement. And that's, that, that's the agreement that they put with the European Union mm, together. They neg- they but, but,
2: but, you know, they negotiated on the basis uh, that it, it would get parliamentary approval, and it hasn't, so they can't deliver it.
0: Then, they, then that is why I suppose Britain is now facing uh, probably into an election to change the arithmetic to see could they they get parliamentary approval.
2: Mm. And of course, the Prime Minister wrote this letter, which uh, few seem able to understand, uh, to Mr. Tusk, uh, the President of the Council, yesterday, suggesting that there would be alternatives to the backstop put in place as some sort of solution. As I say, few seem to understand that, and he's uh, to meet. Uh, with uh, the Taoiseach in September in Dublin, uh, which in itself may be uh, a positive part to that meeting, but can anything come of it?
0: Well, I suppose if you look at the House of Commons' own research in relation to the the backstop and the technology that uh, Boris Johnson and others... Uh, in the, the Brexiteer wing of the Tory party has spoken about uh, a House of Commons report said that there were no technological solutions anywhere in the world other than the theoretical that would mean that there'd be no return to infrastructure on the border mm. there but is no open border between any two jurisdictions which have divergence in terms of trade or in terms of tariffs or in terms of standards
2: so when the Irish government says there won't be a hard border they're they're not telling us the truth is that right?
0: No, when the Irish government said there won't be a hard border, that's a pretty case on the issue that the British government stand by the backstop that they negotiate. Oh,
2: well, they've, they, they've said uh, if there is no deal, there'll have to be checks, but there won't be on the border. There'll be somewhere else. Uh, again, a, another Brexit statement that nobody was able to understand.
0: Well, that's because it's not true, because mm. like you cannot have a situation where you're transferring goods across a border that's 499 kilometres long that has somewhere between, depending on who is doing the counting, 208 or 310 border crossings and trying to believe that uh, you can have checks away from the border that wouldn't uh, lead to criminality and smuggling on a massive scale um, is defying belief and credibility. But then, you know, the British position on this is defying belief and credibility because they, they seem to think and they have portrayed this as undemocratic, but they are the ones who are okay.
1: they're
0: the They're the British government, and they're the ones that are supposed to negotiate on their behalf. The fact that they haven't been able to get it through their own parliament is their own issue. But they negotiated the backstop because the Irish government, with our EU colleagues, have said, if we have a return to our border on the island of Ireland, we know there'll be a return to violence. We must prevent this at all costs.
2: All right, well, the clock continues to tick down to uh, the 31st of uh, October. We'll leave it there for the moment. Many thanks, though, for joining us, as always. Fianna Fáil Senator Mark Daly, who is uh, the rapporteur of uh, that report, the first ever report by uh, Dahl and Shannon Committee on Reuniting Ireland.
3: Michael Reed, Reed on,
2: on LMFM. Now, Edmund Phelan, President of the ICSA, the Irish Cattle and Sheep Farmers Association, joins us uh, following uh, the talks uh, between farmers and factories yesterday about the beef price crisis. Good morning to you, Edmund, and thanks for joining us. As I understand it, uh, we're some way away from a- an agreement now and what is... Uh, the objective is trying to shore up the difference between what farmers say are survival rates or the survival line, as they put it, of about €4 euro a kilo and what they are actually being paid, which is about three fifty.
4: Yeah, uh, I mean, yesterday was practically, you could say, a complete waste of time. We spent um, from 11 o'clock yesterday morning until after 10 last night, got nowhere, only a few minor peripheral issues that didn't cost the meat factories anything, they're just basically uh, housekeeping.
2: Have uh, they got that 50 cent a kilo, though?
4: Not at all. No, see, that's the stupidity of the whole situation. We're not even supposed to talk about money. Yeah. But We're trying to uh, get, get some concessions along the edges on quality assurance and so on, and ages of animals. But, no. At least the first day they said they referred to our members. They just don't wall this completely yesterday. Nothing. We can't do this. We can't do this. Mm. So, I'd say to stop uh, the farm organisations uh, walking out um, it was decided to, to phone the Minister at 10 o'clock last night and uh, I'm actually just down the road from back Western now and we're meeting again at 10 o'clock
2: OK, and is the Minister in a position to intervene uh, in an effective way because uh, to put a, a minimum price in place may be in breach of competition rules?
4: Yeah, that's what we're being told, but I mean, we're going to have to look at this whole competition rules. I don't know who who made this. Uh, To me, it's a a stupid law. Uh, Everybody's entitled to make a living. Everybody in the industry has to make a living. The the full, um, in a downturn, we said the full cost can't be borne by the primary producer.
2: Mm. But if they're European rules, uh, it's not in the gift of the minister to change them, is it?
4: Well, I, I don't know, but somebody's going to have to change it because it's it's gone beyond a joke now. It's, I mean, there's a, an animal welfare issue here. People can't afford to feed the cattle, and they can't afford to take what's been offered for them. And there's a humanitarian issue. I mean, farmers are at their wits' end at the moment.
2: All right, and uh, there's the price then that's being paid on cattle under 30 months of age, which is also one of the issues, is it?
4: Yeah, I mean, we even asked that they would lift the age limit that... Uh, people with, with slightly older cattle could get some some few cents extra and we, as I said we were stonewalled on that uh, they just keep saying it's a market requirement which we don't feel it is. Mm. So if if the meat industry isn't going to do something for us we're going to have to talk to the retailers I, I know from, from my information is that they're even the retailers are moving from paying a minimum wage to paying a living wage Well, somebody's going to have to pay a living wage to the producer.
2: Right uh, and I suppose for people listening to us uh, this morning uh, wondering what might happen and how their uh, prices might be affected as a result of uh, these talks. It doesn't sound as though you're giving them much scope for hope, Edmund.
4: No, and I mean, even from your listeners' point of view, we went through the figures for Ireland and the UK and France. Retail prices are down something like a half a percent. That's minuscule, nothing Mm. uh, this year, whereas uh, Producer prices are down uh, ten to fifteen percent. So even the, even the even the we we say the consumer isn't benefiting mm. from the lower prices.
2: Okay, but Some,
4: it, somebody's profiteering somewhere along the line.
2: Yeah. So uh, either somebody profiteers less, or the consumer pays more.
4: Yeah. Well, generally, because the, the consumer sort of uh, sets the price, the consumer won't probably won't pay any more. It's just a matter. It's supply and demand, and. As long as there is extra cattle in the system, uh, we're just going to be fleeced.
2: Mm. And that really doesn't give anybody any hope.
4: No, I mean the minister is going to have to intervene somewhere. Now he he keeps saying I can't do anything yeah. on price, but he's going to have to do something somewhere. Or uh, puts. Some something in place, uh, as I say, to avert an animal welfare disaster and a humanitarian disaster. Uh,
2: And if not, if the factories uh, can't come up with this 50 cent or won't come up with this 50 cent and uh, the retailers stay out of the talks, uh, Mm -hmm. which has been uh, that uh, unfortunate way of uh, trying to negotiate with somebody who's not at the table, what then? Is it back to the pickets?
4: Uh, I don't know. See, The pickets, uh, our organisation, wasn't involved. I mean, we do support Mm. the farmers who are there And I don't know whether it's going to come to that. Um, Nobody really wants to be on a picket line.
2: What's your sense, though? I mean, what's the mood of farmers? Uh, Uh, And I understand the ICSA is separate to the Beef Plan movement, but uh, I I think uh, you applauded the action that they took.
4: Yeah, yeah, there's an awful lot of anger there, uh, not only with Beef Plan, but amongst a lot of our own members, grassroots members as well.
2: Mm, And what is your sense that if these talks aren't successful, that they'll be back to the pickets?
4: Uh, I hope not. I'm hopeful we will get something today. Um, but uh, i'm not holding my breath
2: okay, uh, and if we are back to the pickets uh it, it has the makings of a, a very nasty dispute, not just between the farmers and the factories, but uh, there is this question of farmers being pitted against farmers
4: that is true, yeah, because there are some farmers they nearly have to have to step, you know I mean their backs are to the wall uh. We say uh, feed merchants looking for money. And, John, people who feel to pay them, they want to pay them.
5: Hmm.
2: Okay, well, I'm sure people will be watching with interest and listening for news throughout the day. uh, But uh, whilst you're hopeful, uh, I'm I'm not sure that uh, there's uh, much in in the way of grounds uh, to be hopeful from what you've been saying to us uh, this morning, Edmund.
6: Okay.
2: All right, thank you very much indeed. Edmund Phelan, President of the ICSA, the Irish Cattle and Sheep Farmers Association.
3: Michael Reed on
2: LMFM. The Dundalk Democrat is reporting exclusively uh, this week on how one third of all parking fines issued by Louth County Council remain unpaid by the end of each year. And it's a lot of fines that have been issued and a lot of fines that have not been paid. For example, last year, over 18,000 fines were issued and of that 18,000 by the end of the year, almost 6,000 of them went unpaid Paid. Let's uh, talk uh, to David Lynch who's the editor with the Dundalk Democrat and has this exclusive story in the paper today and a very good morning to you David and thanks for joining us. Uh, this came about as a freedom of information request
6: That's right Michael, the Democrats submitted a, an FOI as they're called I'd say about a month ago just to try and get a little bit more background and understanding of uh, the revenue from parking that Louth County Council get on, a, on an annual basis and we looked at the overall annual revenue that they'd get in, but we also decided to look a bit more at the amount of tickets that are issued on a yearly basis, plus then just try and find out, of those tickets that are issued, how many actually get paid, or as the case turns out, how many of those are actually outstanding. Which
2: And if, if, case, there, if there's a pattern, I suppose, because the information that you received, David, related to a period of over three years...
6: That's correct. We look back at 2016, 2017 and 2018 and it's quite clear that for those three years, certainly for those three years, that each year by the end of the year, one third of all the fines that are issued by the County Council for for, for parking fines, they remain outstanding. So there's quite a chunk of potential revenue there that the council aren't able to get on an annual basis.
2: Mm. And do we know why? What's the reason behind this?
6: Well, the, the council. We, we we contacted the council for for uh, comment on this. Now they they were fairly uh, short in their response, just more or less suggesting that they uh, they they any fines that are outstanding, they take legal proceedings in 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 relation to those particular fines. And that doesn't that doesn't really give us much information as to what they do or or what the causes are. You know, reading between the lines, Louth being being, being a border county, there is the potential that perhaps we're looking at. Motorists that park in, in Louth and are from perhaps Northern Ireland, and therefore seeking recourse to, to get those fines repaid is more difficult. That could be a possibility, mm. but there hasn't really been much more information garnered as to, to why. Like, a quite substantial number of fines remain outstanding.
2: Okay, uh, so uh, because of uh, the geography, it's possible uh, that uh, a summons will be ineffective and somebody can't be prosecuted because uh, they don't live in the jurisdiction. Uh, But quite a a lot of revenue is generated from parking overall. And this is uh, something you've been able to establish from these documents.
6: Yes, for for the three years we were talking about there, Michael, 2016, 2017, twenty eighteen, there, there there is, you know, if you look at twenty sixteen, mm. there is one point nine million, basically two million in annual income from parking charges for Loud County Council. In twenty seventeen, this increased again further. It was it was almost two point one million, but then last year there was actually a substantial drop in the in the annual income from parking charges to one point seven five million. Now we contacted the council to get their say on this and to figure out exactly why there was a drop of 300,000. Mm. Now they came back to us which we kind of thought they would suggest that that was in relation to uh, the suspension of parking charges in Drogheda for a number of months that year between March and July so mm. they had more or less attributed that drop to, uh, to, the, to the loss of 300,000 in in uh, parking revenue in Drogheda. Good. That really is but incredible. Mm. It is, it's quite a substantial mm. sum. And but, people
2: but, will remember that as well, David, uh, because uh, the bylaw which uh, affected to charges uh, was deemed to, to be illegal.
6: That's correct, yeah. The, the council mm. were, were forced to seek legal advice on that situation and, and then, uh, as uh, as we know, they, they actually had to suspend parking fees for that period of time until they got to the bottom of that particular issue, which, you know, at this time when, when all local authorities are struggling for revenue, to lose 300000 uh, is quite a chunk of, of, of any local authority budget, especially considering that you're looking at a situation realistically where that kind of revenue is going to decrease year and year because yeah. the greater problem of town centre uh, you know, retail is, is an issue. So so you can't really afford a local authority to lose that kind of it.
2: Uh, And that led to the debate about charges and uh, should the same price be charged in Drogheda as in Dundalk or elsewhere for that matter and uh, people were quite animated about that. uh, But what about the fines? Uh, Is the fine uh, similar in both towns and across the county for that matter?
6: Well, it, the, the figures we got were, were more general in, in mm. that way, Michael. They didn't break it down per town or anything, so mm. it's an overall county-wide...
2: Sure, but category. it's about €40 euro if you are fined, is it?
6: It is, yeah. That's mm. a, that's a standard rate, of course. Pr- if you don't pay that €40 or initially, then you know there's an escalation mm. cost that go along with it.
2: Because that's a, a lot of money that's uh, foregone at uh, about 6,000 fines each year that go unpaid. Uh, you're talking about €240,000, roughly a quarter of a million euro.
6: Yeah, and that's that. And if you if you look at that, that's, that is like on an annual basis, you're you're looking at a quarter of a million. That when you think about it, the council then also probably has to contract in a third party to to gather that debt. So the council has to sell it off at a, at a devalued rate. So you're, you're you're losing out quite a substantial amount on an annual basis.
2: Mm. And, and uh, I take it uh, that it, it's made up somehow. And uh, if uh, there reliant or they're estimating a, a certain yield from parking charges. If they don't get that because of unpaid fines, uh, they look to ins, uh, to increase uh, the hourly rate of parking.
6: Yeah, and you you would guess that these kind of figures would, would back up that kind of thinking that if they had to go forward with a proposal to suggest that to increase it even further, they can just reflect in these figures and say, you know, we, we have deficiencies, deficits in the budget, we have to do this. And therefore that you know, all these things have a knock-on impact. By increasing parking in town centres, you're kind of pushing people away even further from, you know, struggling retail town centres like Dundalk and Drogheda, Hmm. and therefore, you know, you may be trying to get a short-term gain, but the long-term loss is potentially the loss of your town centre retail areas.
2: I suppose it's trying to get the balance, isn't it? Uh, Because uh, if it's free, people tend to to use it, as we saw in Drogheda. I think there was an awful lot of complaints uh, from people who were trying to get parking in Drogheda when uh, the charges were suspended uh, because people were going to work and parking up for the whole day.
6: That's true. And I I guess what people more or less want is is a fairness in terms of the amount they pay for for an hourly rate versus what they they kind of get from it. This is why, you know, there's lots of plans and talks about improving the the town centres of Dundalk and Drogheda to make them a more attractive proposition. And therefore, I think if if you're more in a town centre to attract people, they wouldn't necessarily have a problem paying a certain amount of an hourly rate once they know they're getting value out of it.
2: Mm. Uh, and we we don't know uh, what the money is used for, do we? Is, is it ring fenced uh, for road improvements or anything like that? Because a lot of people would say they pay a, a lot of money to be uh, motorists when you take into account all of the taxes on fuel, your motor tax, uh, and parking charges, uh, which uh, in the case of County Louth is amounting to around two million on an annual basis.
6: Yeah, well, you see that is the other thing. Then you have plenty of people that would say you know there's there's roads close to their homes in in, in, the, in the county that. Need you know urgent repairs, and then as you said, they're paying their their, their motor tax. They're paying for that the pump as well, and now you're asking for them to pay potentially an increased levy on you know the parking charges in the town centre. So this is where you've an escalation of uh, annoyance from people where they're not seeing a return on it.
2: Okay. Interesting stuff. Uh, People can read the exclusive in uh, The Democrat uh, this week. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us. David Lynch is uh, the editor of uh, the Dundalk Democrat. Now, we were talking earlier on uh, about Brexit and as to whether there be a a hard Brexit or whether there should be a backstop, a backstop uh, which Boris Johnson negotiated, as Senator Mark Daly was pointing out to us uh, very clearly. But uh, as Boris Johnson has said consecutively since... Uh, or consistently since becoming Prime Minister. Uh, It it may have been uh, agreed or negotiated by the British, but it's been rejected three times by the British Parliament. And this is exactly the
7: line that the Prime Minister was taking yesterday. I think we can definitely get ready. Now, I'm not going to suggest that there won't be, as I said, on the steps of Downing Street. There may well be bumps uh, in the road, but we will be ready to come out on October the 31st, deal or no deal. Now, of course, our friends and partners on the other side of the channel are showing a little bit of reluctance at the moment to change their position. That's fine. I'm confident that they will. But in the meantime, we have to get ready for for a no-deal outcome. That is, I'm afraid, very much up to our friends. And I hope that they will compromise. That They have seen that the UK Parliament has three times rejected the the withdrawal agreement, the backstop. It just doesn't work. It's not democratic, I hope that they will see fit to to compromise. But in the meantime, we get ready to come out on October the 31st.
2: Deal or no deal? British Prime Minister Boris Johnson.
7: Michael
5: Reed on LMFM.
2: Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie.
5: Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Some reaction already this morning to your interview with Senator Mark Daly at the top of the show. Declan from Dundalk. That bomb in Kent, Fermanagh, is just going to be the start of it if there's a hard Brexit. It's terrible that the success of the peace process could be lost We could be returning to those dark days. Nobody wants that, Michael, but they don't seem to understand the implications in the UK.
2: Mm, Okay. well, as I said, it does seem to be a question of who is going to blink first. I'm not sure that they don't understand the implications, uh, but uh, there is a little bit of uh, grandstanding going on.
5: Deirdre says that if we go back to a hard border, it will destroy the country big time. Can anyone save us at this stage? It's going to be so serious. Nobody wants to go back to the troubles again. Mm. Denise phoned in. It's not the shortage of food or medicine that they're talking about that I'm worried about. It's that we are going to see a return of violence again. The dissidents would just love this, any chance to justify their actions.
2: Well, yeah, maybe too late to be saying a return to violence, Mm, an increase in the violence uh, that we're witnessing now. That was uh, really uh, something from the Dark Ages, uh, or at least uh, pre-1998 yesterday.
5: Tom says, is there not an argument at this stage for getting rid of the backstop because that's what seems to be causing Mm. all the disagreement and see what is being offered instead because if we keep insisting on the backstop being there then the chances are the UK will crash out without a deal. And God help us all here in Ireland if Mm. that happens.
2: Well, that's it. Uh, There is uh, the chance uh, that if you insist on uh, the backstop, the result will be exactly what the backstop is designed to prevent, which is a hard border.
5: Derek lives in Dundalk and travels to and from the north for work every day. I'm just dreading the thoughts of a hard Brexit, he says, Mm. and the thoughts of long queues on the border again. It really will be a backward step. The freedom of being able to travel uh, from the south into the north and Mm. back again is just a pleasure.
2: Yeah, well. Let's uh, hope that we don't really have to experience it uh, again uh, because it is a a little bit uh, difficult uh, to contemplate such a a scenario and it is so dire that uh, hopefully common sense will prevail uh, and uh, that uh, some... Sense and logic will be brought to all of this, uh, but uh, time will tell. We've uh, until the thirty first of October, as things stand, under the current deadline. Now let's uh, go to Independent Councillor in Loud Kevin Callan, who's come into us uh, this morning. A very good morning to you, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, you've uh, been reporting to people on social media that you've gone to the Garda because of threats you received. Tell us more.
1: Yeah, well, morning, Michael. Um, I suppose, like any politician, I would have a relatively thick skin at this stage after being involved for over 10 years but uh, yesterday I received a message via my phone which quite shocked me at the time and I really and truly I'll, I'll just read what I received I received that hopefully I will be hung until I'm dead or hanged whichever is correct as long as you are dead it's okay mm. that was the third message I received from somebody that I don't know the identity of uh, and the message slowly got worse and yesterday evening I was on my way home from the west of Ireland and I actually was passing through Trim and it was actually annoying me at that stage. I was very angry about it and I went mm-hmm. in just to show it to somebody to say, "Is this? has this crossed a line, is this too much? Um, and the details have now been left with the guards and I'm pursuing it with the guards. But it just, I suppose, shows the level things have gone to in certain sectors that people feel this is okay. And it's not just politicians, it's young people... It's you know people who may be vulnerable at a time when they receive mm. something like this and to me the likes of this crosses a line and that was very strange to get that on a telephone usually you would get abuse via social media but to me I think some people out there think that behaviour like this is okay and it's not okay and it mm. has an effect on people
2: uh, and uh, what do you mean you got it on your phone? I got a text, a message. A text yeah, message, yeah
1: a few yeah. days ago I got a message mm. and the general, the first message was the usual thing you'll get, mm. you're a traitor to Ireland, hopefully the people will rise up and remove you all from power, you're scum right. that's normal mm. but then, this has crossed the line as far as I'm
2: concerned. Mm. And uh, was it a, a block number? Or no, was no. The, the
1: number is the number is uh, the number is there. I am mm. um, the number is still live. Um, mm. But I just I don't understand how people feel that this is acceptable, whether it's a politician or whether it's a person in public life or a private mm. citizen. People receiving material like this, it's it's not appropriate. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I can't argue with that part of it, uh, but uh, you've decided to go very public with this. Mm. Why is that the case?
1: Yeah, well, I feel that if we don't speak out about this and if people don't mention Mm. it, I'll I'll put it this way. If somebody commits a physical assault on somebody, there's a general rule, it's called the eggshell rule, that if you push somebody over in a pub, you must take it that their skull is the width of an eggshell. Because Mm. if they fall and they crack their skull, you are guilty of the consequences of that. The likes of this, whilst I would consider myself to be quite tough mentally and well able to handle myself, the likes of this that other people may be receiving, they need to speak to people or they need, if they ever receive anything like this that's Mm. a threat, they need to go to the Gardaí or they need to speak to their school or their principal or their parents because anybody who sends material like this, they are the person with the problem, not Mm. the person who receives it.
2: Yeah, but uh, why not have it uh, investigated and uh, have the authorities deal with it? Why did you decide to go so public Because
1: I feel Mm. people, Michael, are probably receiving material Mm. like this. I I would have received... But of course they are. Yeah, but I would have received Mm. abusive material Mm. in the past. When I received this yesterday, Mm. I was quite shocked when I received Mm. it. And over the course of yesterday, I I realised that it was something I had to Mm. act on. And I received this in the context of being a public rep. Yeah. I've put it into the public domain that mm. this behaviour is not appropriate. I'm encouraging people, if they mm. get stuff like this, they must. Seek it, it,
2: help. It's very inappropriate. Uh, and uh, you are a public representative. Uh, and of course, uh, you're a barrister, so you'd have a fair understanding of. Um Uh, The law and uh, that when you threaten somebody uh, that it it can be interpreted in a certain way but Mm -hmm. I think you'd also have an understanding Mm -hmm. uh, that there's some very vulnerable people out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're talking about the eggshell principle. There's also Mm -hmm. the copycat principle Uh, and uh, I mean I must say when I saw this uh, on Facebook this morning I was very uncomfortable reading it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was very uncomfortable that you read it out there a moment Mm -hmm. ago on the radio uh, in case it might influence somebody Uh, and you may Uh, despite your good intentions uh, be giving somebody bad thoughts Uh, and there is also very vulnerable people out there people who have mental health issues uh, and um, I mean this uh, may just be as a result of that uh, and uh, can be dealt with in a a, a quiet and appropriate way
1: Mm -hmm. I I would disagree with you Michael I believe if this behaviour has been carried on that people need to be aware of it and they need to be encouraged to come forward a lot of people Mm. who suffer from this material being received never speak to anybody, never seek assistance mm. I am. That's the best them, way to
2: deal with it some would say
1: No not at all, mm. no not at all because mm. the likes of receiving this has serious implications for people's mental health mm. and to do nothing about it is not appropriate mm. they need to reach out to somebody No
2: but you have the telephone number of the person who sent this to you and you yes. can have the guards investigate and, and have a word with them yes. and to see if there's grounds for taking it further before going public and putting this message out for people to read in the way that you did mm-hmm.
1: Oh I, I believe absolutely mm. that the public need to be aware that this is going on and that they should not tolerate it and maybe if anybody who has seen it placed publicly is aware that their child or somebody in their family is receiving material like this they'll sit down mm. and have a conversation with them now because you can't let this sit and mm. until I spoke to somebody yesterday in the Gardaí mm. about this yeah I was questioning myself mm. has this crossed the line yeah. has this not crossed the line mm. and I'm now absolutely sure it did cross the mm. line Michael. but you, you
2: you know that people woke up this morning who had nothing to do with this, uh, who mm-hmm. are going about their day-to-day mm-hmm. business and, and read yep. this vitriol yep. uh, because you've put it there for yes, them to see. absolutely. And you are responsible for bringing that message into their lives. You've yes. done that.
1: Michael, forewarned is forearmed and we are not speaking enough about the amount of abuse that certain people are receiving through social media in particular. Mm. And I I'm, have I'm, absolutely no issue with that being shared publicly because people need to waken up God. to this they need to waken up to this mm. because they could have young people in their care. They could mm. have a member of their family who possibly is mentally mm. in a state where they're fragile, and mm. if they receive something like that, that could be the very thing that yeah. pushed them over the edge. Okay, but I, I
2: I know an awful lot of young people, and, and I I don't want them reading that. I know a lot of older people. I don't want them reading. Well, Michael, it either. A lot I don't want to read it to be uh, honest with you. Okay. I'd,
1: I'd actually wish you'd take it down. Right. Well, you probably shouldn't have asked me onto the show this morning. Then well, if that was your view. Mm, well, I was asked to speak to you about it. No, uh, well, and Noel, I was yeah. invited onto your show. I didn't mm. seek to come onto mm-hmm. your show. I was asked onto the show. So mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. felt that was the case I, I don't really see you're well, speaking about it well
2: I mean it is something to discuss isn't it well you know you, 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 that's you, a decision you, for your you, show you've, made a, you, your you've show. made a public statement yes uh, and when a public representative makes a public statement yes. uh, it, it is not unusual to question uh, what you've stated publicly
1: yes I, and hmm. I have stated it Mm. you're telling me you disagree with it but yet Mm. you've had me as a guest on your show Mm. and I absolutely do not apologise for telling people that the likes of this is going Mm. on around them and if it's going on and they know somebody who's affected Mm. they need to help them
2: Are you not not concerned though that you might be upsetting people?
1: No, not at all That's not the response I've received from people No, no, absolutely not
2: Okay And do you think if people were upset that they would contact you and say this has upset me or do you think they think I think they didn't the see message. that. I think they'd read the mm.
1: message that if somebody they know is gone through this, that they mm. need to speak to somebody. Absolutely.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. And do you
1: believe that uh,
2: this was sent to you by somebody uh, who could be considered to be of sound mind?
1: I don't know, Michael. That's mm. for the guard to is that, determine. Isn't that a, a, I, think a, a it's highly, I think it's highly unnerving. Mm. I think it is quite intimidating. Mm. And I think that's the point.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, and there's there's no argument with any so, of so that. So perhaps yeah. your
1: view would be that if the person is not of sound mind, yeah. that that should not be investigated. That's okay. So no. people should sit back no. and just accept no criticism like no. that no. and be okay no. with no. it. No, no, no. Well, I'm I, just I, curious I, to know yes. where you're coming from. Oh, yeah, and
2: I, I'll, I'll answer gladly. I did ask you why you didn't allow the guardie to look at it and to establish if somebody was of yep. sound mind before making it, it as public. Michael, in we, the way we hear that you all have. too
1: much in today's world mm-hmm. that somebody has taken action after receiving something like this mm-hmm. themselves. Okay. And it's not to go to the guards. Mm. It's not to go to the guards. It's to take action which cannot be reversed okay. themselves. Okay, And, and if that message know. out mm. there mm. encourages one parent or one person to say mm. to somebody, are you okay? Have you received mm. something? Because a lot of people are getting this type of material, in particular younger people who are not mm. are not at a stage where they can deal with it and they're keeping that to themselves and they don't just get one message like mm. that they're getting multiple messages and we know the consequences of that mm-hmm. so as a public rep I receive that as a public rep I have an obligation to mm. say to people please if this happens to you or someone you know take mm. action mm. Yeah. No but Michael to stay quiet about it mm. that's happening too much and then the consequence of staying quiet about it is that it is now starting to develop into much uglier material. Oh, God, yeah. Because for years Mm. I have Mm. received the usual abuse, Mm. which Mm -hmm. you take it as part of the job. This is too much. It's too far. Okay. That's the point.
2: Well, it is awful that you got such an awful message. And... I think we'll agree on that, that it is yeah. a truly awful message. Thanks for coming into us this morning. Thank you indeed. Independent Councillor Kevin Callum. Now, let's go back uh, to some more of the calls uh, that have uh, come to us. Uh, you've uh, some more comments there for Marie.
5: I've one more, Michael. Anne says that the Minister and the farmers need to put their heads together and sort out the beef crisis once and for all. This dispute has been going on for far too long and it's greatly impacting on the farmers involved.
2: Okay, well, thanks for that, Anne, and thanks for everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958.
3: Michael, Michael
2: Reed on, on LMFM. Now, how do we protect young people's mental health? Well, there is a, a template under the Vision for Change policy, which has been state policy in terms of dealing with the mental health of young and old for over a decade. And uh, it is that there should be one team specifically in place for every 50,000 people in the country. Uh, in County Meath, uh, Padre Tobin uh, ain't too... Uh, TD and leader of his party is saying uh, that uh, the uh, amount of people who've been deployed to do this work is half of what it should be and he's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Paddy Tobin, and thanks for joining us here this morning. Uh, There's three teams in County Mead, is it?
3: Yeah, so first of all, this is a very serious situation. There's been about a 22% increase in the number of children and teenagers uh, who are experiencing self-harm. Uh, the suicide rate amongst young people in Ireland, uh, between 15 and 19 years old, is the seventh highest out of 33 European countries. Um, and many people will have heard, you know, over the last number of years and months, very tragic and difficult situations in their own communities. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of really, I suppose, traditional factors that are putting pressure on, on young children with regards to mental health issues, but there's a lot of new factors as well and social media is one of those factors that's putting a lot of pressure on young people with regards um, you know, pressure to conform and you know, loss of sleep and pressure to um, suffer from peer pressure as well as a result of social media. Um, so we know that you need proper services mm-hmm. if you want to be able to help those young people through those difficult situations that they're in. And, you know, we're hearing even from the United Nations that Ireland doesn't provide the necessary services for teenage mental health issues. Uh, and I've, studies that I've done before have shown that there's about 2,500 people waiting up to a year for their first meeting with a mental health clinician, and many of those are, are children. Mm. And many children who present to an emergency department or an A&E uh, with regard to mental health issues have to wait up to four days to actually see a psychiatrist. So I put in a parliamentary question just a a couple of weeks ago asking to see what were the strengths of the teams. And the teams are structured in child and adolescent mental health service teams. They're they're also known as CAM. teams. Mm -hmm. And those teams, um, even if, you know, you mentioned earlier that there there should be a team for every 50,000 population. Now, even if that was uh, the, the, the case and the government reckons that there's a necessity for three teams, uh, in Meath, mm-hmm. um, there are still a third uh, down with regards to the necessary staff to meet the needs of young people in County Meath. But, of course, there's about 200,000 people living in Meath, and that figure you gave, 1 to 50,000, uh, would ne- necessitate that there would be at least four teams operating uh, in the county. And given those figures, uh, the county is roughly at 50% staffing power to be able to deal with the child and adolescent mental health needs in the county.
2: Right. Uh, And what's the consequence of that? Uh, If uh, children aren't being seen, uh, does that mean that they find themselves in a crisis situation?
3: Yeah. So, for example, if if a child needs an acute uh, uh, hospital bed uh, for issues with regards to mental health and there isn't a hospital bed necessary for them, they will be forced into an adult situation. Uh, And if there's no adult mental health bed for them, in that scenario, they'll literally be forced to stay in the accident and emergency uh, overnight or for a number of days uh, with regards to issues that they're dealing with. Um, If they they haven't got access to a psychiatrist uh, or a psychologist for a period of time, obviously they're not going to get the treatment that's necessary. And mental health issues are often Immediate issues—they're emergency issues. They're not issues where people uh, can wait for months and months, and even over a year, mm. to have their first meeting with a, a clinician. So there's no doubt that, you know, in, in in any situation in medicine, if you're not diagnosed in time, if you're not treated in time, well then your outcomes are going to be subpar. You're not going to get the the necessary outcomes that you need uh, to be able to. Uh, To improve, Uh, and
2: if you are seen by a CAMS team, by a child and adolescent mental health service team, uh, how do you end up being seen by them? Are you referred to them?
3: There's a number of ways uh, to to be. You you can be referred to them. You can contact them directly. I understand, uh, and through the accident and emergency. Uh, situations you can be referred to them in that regard.
2: That would be very rare, though, would it not?
3: It would be rare in mm-hmm. in that scenario I mean, that a person would actually. But you know,
2: well, so often we hear of people going into a hospital and uh, they've been suicidal and maybe they've uh, taken something or they've jumped from something. And as soon as they're physically well, they're just released without any referral.
3: And that's that's the problem there, um, because it's really important that these people are taken into the whole health process and that they're they're walked through a recovery until they feel strong enough to be able to, to I suppose, to operate without uh, the need of those services. And if you look at the staffing within uh, CAMS throughout the country and, and mm-hmm. staffing within mental health, in total, a number of years ago, 2017, the government promised 240 extra staff and actually provided 15 million of, a, uh, of an allocation for those mental health uh, yeah. staff. Mm-hmm. But just at the end of the year had employed 21 of that 240 staff. And if you go back further, you know, to 2016 and 2015, the government are not meeting the recruitment whatsoever when it comes to mental health staff uh, in Ireland. And uh, they're not de- meeting de- the recruitment. It's, it's the logical consequence of, of that is that there's going to be gaps, there's going to be people who are missing in those roles, and there's people missing in those roles, there's treatment not being delivered. And, you know, we need to get to grips with this issue. We need preventative Help with regards, you know, allowing uh, children and adolescents grow up uh, and be strong and be able to deal with the difficulties that they're in. But if we're going to ask young people to talk about the difficulties that they have, and that's the right thing to do because talking about these issues is often the first step to deal with mental health issues, well, then at least we should put the services in place so that, you know, after. Opening up and speaking of these issues, they then get the necessary treatment that they deserve.
2: Well, people, I'm sure, uh, will remember quite well because Helen McIntyre would have been uh, the minister with responsibility for mental health at the time that there were millions of euro uh, that were added as additional funding, but the government was unable to spend the money because they were unable to recruit the staff.
3: Yeah, so so that figure that goes back to that year in 2017 of of 15 uh, million uh, that was allocated for the purpose of recruiting 240 staff, but only 21 staff actually being um, uh, uh, recruited into the positions. And some of the reasons for that is the fact that staff uh, go to other countries uh, rather than uh, operating in Ireland. And if they're leaving Ireland, often the reason they're leaving in Ireland is because of the conditions that they're operating here. Um, and we have this vicious circle of understaffing, which leads to phenomenal pressure uh, with regards to individual staff. And then those staff, in the long run, leaving the country. Uh, and if you look at me, for example, we, do, we don't have the necessary consultant psychiatrists, the junior doctors, the clinical psychologists, uh, the psychiatric nurses, the social workers, social care um, even occupational therapy and speech and language uh, therapists, we don't have those in the adequate numbers to deal with people. And if we don't have those in mm. adequate numbers and the pressure is there with regards to demand, what you have is waiting lists.
2: And there's still many parts of the country that are without uh, an out of hours service. Uh, so when people are actually in a crisis, there isn't anybody to respond.
3: Absolutely. There was a, a parliamentary question put in recently, which stated that 19 counties are without any acute beds in child mental health services. So 19 of the 26 counties in this state don't have a, an acute bed uh, to, for a child or uh, an adolescent to access in that scenario. And indeed, you know, many adults uh, don't have out of hours response uh, to their mental health needs uh, as well. And this is basic stuff. This is you know, a foundational service provision in a country that's having you know, a, an increased mental health needs uh, mm. throughout society. And if the government don't get this right, it is logically going to lead to those who are most vulnerable suffering the most. Mm. And that's why you know, it is incumbent on, on TDs like myself, and I would say government ministers in County Meads to actually step up to the plate, to put the pressure on the government to say that this is no longer acceptable, that Meads is under par with regards to the level of staff that we have and that we actually start to ensure that we have literally what other counties have. Standard levels of provision well, that, that,
2: that, that some other counties have because obviously your focus is on Meath, it should be as a TD for the county but uh, there is inconsistencies right across this country, is there not?
3: There are, but if you look at the mental health spend for children in Lowesmeath, uh, which is obviously taken as one unit uh, with regard mm. to government administration in this space, we are uh, at the bottom and at the second last rung uh, of uh, mental health spending per capita in the state. So, while there is definitely a, a, a really rough and difficult experience right around the country, Loudon me specifically, like in so many areas, have a lower uh, per capita spending in this particular uh, area. And that has radical uh, problems uh, and, ra- and radical uh, outcomes for young people uh, right through uh, Irish society and right through uh, County meath and, and Louth. Mm. So that's why we need to make sure that we have that investment.
2: And, uh, and you know, prevention is better than cure, but uh, as an illness like this progresses over the course of a year before a child gets his or her first appointment, uh, it, it really just... Uh, is against uh, the idea of prevention being better than cure. It's allowing a thing to fester, Uh, and although you may be seen in a year, the damage that could be done in those 12 months could take years to rectify.
3: Absolutely. Um, Some of these conditions that we're dealing with would be progressive uh, conditions. And if you look at some conditions, um, you know, if people have uh, specific uh, occasions uh, of those conditions, the more that they have, the far more difficult it is to treat the conditions in the long run. And it's far more difficult Mm. to treat the conditions in the long run without recourse to uh, medication Mm. in the long run. And then obviously when medication becomes part of Mm. a treatment process, well then that can be a, a, a far longer journey to recovery. And
2: particularly with psychotic conditions, but even with something like somebody feeling... Sad or under the weather uh, today uh, and in a year from now having a a chronic depression?
3: Absolutely. So in other words, the earlier the people uh, experience these uh, anxiety or mental health issues or feeling low, etc., the earlier that they access um, services, the more likely it is that they'll be able to get back uh, to the normal selves and to feel stronger in themselves. And that's why we would say, and I would say very strongly to people, If you are feeling uh, any of these symptoms, it is important, despite all we've said so far, that you do your best to reach out to family and friends and Mm -hmm. to uh, medical health professionals in this. Absolutely. while
2: first part of call, I suppose, is always the GP anyway, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, and we
3: we are talking about the absence of a service and Mm -hmm. the need for that service to be built. But there is, a, there is a service there. It's not strong enough, it's not good enough, and I don't want people to get the, the wrong impression that there's no service there. There is a service uh, there, and people should reach out to that service. Uh, but what, it needs to, what needs to happen over the next 12 to 18 months, in my view, is that the elected reps of Louth and Meath get together, work together, and put serious pressure on the Department of Health and the Minister for Health to ensure that the necessary funding goes into this uh, particular area and that the recruitment processes. Are put in place to make sure that these positions are filled and, and and the last point and the point that you started with this particular interview was that instead of having three CAMS teams for County Meath which is enough for a population of 150,000 people we need to have four CAMS teams in Meath which would actually be the right figure for the 200,000 people who are living in County Mead at the moment. Okay,
2: We'll leave it there and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. AIM2 leader and uh, TD for Mead West, Patrick Michael, Michael Reed,
3: Reed on, on
2: LMFM. FM. Well, just like we've uh, been discussing how when uh, there's a shortage of uh, staff in uh, the child and adult mental health services, children can wait an inordinate amount of uh, time to be seen, sometimes months, sometimes more than than a year for a first assessment and it's a problem uh, that uh, the health services are experiencing across Every department, it would seem. Uh, There's over 5,000 women who are waiting more than 12 months to see a gynaecologist and over 28,000 women are waiting nationally. This is as a result of a shortage of consultants and it doesn't just refer to gynaecology, I I don't think. uh, But Care Can't Wait is uh, the campaign uh, that the consultants have engaged in and we'll hear more now with Dr. Clena Murphy, who's a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist in the Coombe Women and Infants University Hospital as well as Talla University Hospital. And a very good morning to you, Dr. Murphy, and thanks for joining us. What are the consequences of waiting so long to get an appointment?
8: Well, there's serious consequences and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to to, um, talk to people about that You know, with 28,000 women waiting to see a gynecologist, um, some of those would be women with significant bleeding problems. So uh, they're trying to go about their day's work, trying to look after children and uh, finding that very difficult with heavy periods, etc. Some of them may be older women and have developed prolapse. Um, which can be a very embarrassing and uncomfortable um, situation to be, be in, and they can't go about their, you know, activities of daily living. And um, they're waiting to see a consultant for either surgery or a pessary. So these are real women with with real problems. Mm. Um, and, and
2: what would a typical waiting time be? I, I mean, I take us uh, that whilst it's a lot of women. Uh, about a, a fifth of the women who are waiting. Uh, that when you talk about five thousand plus women who are waiting more than a year for a, an appointment that they've been prioritized to in, in, in such a way they're that, that they're not as urgent as some of the women who are being seen yeah.
8: It, it, it's very tricky for consultants yeah. to you know you're looking on the basis of a letter to say what is urgent and and uh, what is routine genuinely we know that every woman you know would feel their situation warrants an appointment so sure. when we say urgent we're looking for symptoms that are what we call red flag symptoms so symptoms like bleeding after the menopause really can't wait or should be seen within six to eight weeks for example Unfortunately, that even doesn't always happen. So something like prolapse might be down as routine, but that woman could be in an awful lot of discomfort and and, uh, pain and uh, embarrassment, might have problems with going to the bathroom. You know, so even though they may be marked routine, that is a consequence of the the difficulties with accessing the service. Uh, And as consultants, we are constantly apologising to patients for waiting up to a year, longer than a year, uh, to see us. Um, and that's not the way we would like it to be. Um, most consultants are, as well as looking after a gynecology clinic, are also looking after labour ward, on-call, or, uh, you know, other facets of the of the health service. So um, we do need more hands-on-deck, if you like, to allow everybody to... Um, who needs to see a gynaecologist see it within a reasonable time frame.
2: Is it a lottery of sorts uh, in that uh, the waiting time is based on how urgent it's being marked uh, by the GP? And does it come down to how the GP and uh, if you're lucky enough to get a GP who sees your case as being urgent or, or, or unlucky enough to get a GP who doesn't?
8: No, I wouldn't say so. I mean, there are you know there are symptoms that a GP will put down on the letter, and mm. in, in fairness, um, we would often get letters if the situation has changed, if if there are symptoms that are now more ominous, or the person's situation has deteriorated. So I have huge sympathy for GPs who are trying to access a service um, in hospitals, and there's only a limit to what can be done in the community. Um, so you know our hands are tied in in, mm. in lots of ways. Um, and, but for for an individual sitting at home and not knowing when they may be seen, and that's another difficulty. Um, you may not know where you are on this waiting list, and that that's psychologically draining as well for women uh, and their carers in in, in many uh, cases. So, I mean, in the Drogheda and Navan region, we know there's a, over 1,400 women on, on a waiting list to be seen for gynecology. Um, we know that nationally, one in five permanent consultant positions are unfilled. So we're not at full capacity. Mm. We know we, we have a deficit of consultants. Um, and 700 specialists left the specialist register overall uh, between 2016 and 17. You know, so, so we are at a bit of a crisis point. We're not going to catch up on these waiting lists unless we fill these posts. Uh, and and try to do something to to improve access.
2: Mm. And as I said, uh, the issue uh, relating to gynaecology is one uh, that you're highlighting as part of the Care Can't Wait campaign, which refers, uh, I think, to probably every uh, department of hospital care. Uh, And you've asked to meet with the minister. You're hoping that he will set a, a date for talks to begin on trying to tackle the crisis.
8: Yes, I think um, that he does need to sit down and we need to look at everything. Um, One of the the things that has been highlighted is that it's hard to attract uh, new consultants to Pulse because there's a big disparity to what people who are entering as consultants now compared Mm. to people before 2012. It's not the the only thing but that and conditions um, and uh, supports around a consultant job is putting people off and Are more likely to stay in places like Australia, America, than they are coming back to, you know, quite a a difficult health service Mm. to work in uh, at times, Um, and then to be on lower pay than their more senior colleagues. You know, so we are looking for equity for younger um, colleagues who often have put a huge amount into their training, have uprooted, gone overseas, Mm. got extra training, and you know, Ireland needs these people back to to. You know, bring new techniques back, new research. You know, they're the cream of the crop, um, and and yes, we think we're going to be paying them less than, you know, than 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 older colleagues or people like myself. You know, so okay. um, it, it's not the only thing, but it, it is one of the things, and and we need to you know look at all uh, avenues we can to to um, improve. Access for patients,
2: and, and people might be very surprised to hear all of that because uh, people will think consultants are some of the best paid professionals that there are in the country. Yeah, uh,
8: absolutely, mm. and I've no problem with yeah. my own pay. I, you know, I'm paid very well, mm. but I do feel for younger co- colleagues, and often they're doing the, you know, more of the on call, more of the, you know, uh, frontline services. Mm. Uh, and yes, I know they're not getting as much uh, pay as as I am and colleagues like me. Mm. Um, and yet they're expected to do, you know, the same amount or more um, as regards, you know, planning and trying to develop a new service, for example, uh, with the knowledge that they have, you know, been away and uprooted and mm. their family. And,
2: and, so, and is it that if uh, pay was restored to the pre-2012 levels, that would be enough to keep them or does it need to increase to the rates that they are playing in places like Australia?
8: Well, I think. I think if there was equity and parity, that that is that is something. Um, I mean, people, some people will stay in Australia for for other reasons, obviously, mm. but it, it certainly is not helping if we cannot, you know, attract people back on pay. And we also are going to say, well, you're going to be seeing, you know, twice as many at your clinic as you were in Australia. Mm. We also need to look at, at conditions, you know. So it's it, mm. it's part of it. I'm not saying it's all of it, yeah. but uh, there is a, a, an inequity piece that, uh, you know, it's hard for people to stomach
2: it. And, and in fairness, I suppose, no matter how well paid consultants are or are not, as the case may be, they are relied on to deliver health services and if we're short 500 consultants it's ultimately the patients who suffer. The,
8: Absolutely. And if, you know, people are, are working in, in, you know, an overburdened system, then there are, there is the potential for, you know, mistakes, errors, people not being at the top of their game if they're seeing more than they really should be seeing. So quality does suffer. Uh, and, you know, people who are, you know, working too much or doing too much on call, that ultimately does have an impact on patients as well. Uh, and there's an increase in burnout. So we're extremely worried about the burnout rate. Among medics overall, people leaving the service, retiring early or needing to cut down their hours. And, you know, it all feeds into the same thing, really. And ultimately, again, patients are on the receiving end of all of that. So, uh, you know, this is not a superficial problem. This This is something that has to be tackled.
2: OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you for joining us this morning. Dr. Kleena Murphy, consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist in, in the Coombe Women and Infants University Hospital and also in Tala University Hospital.
3: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
2: FM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Sergeant Tony Ward of Navin Station joins us for this week's report and we begin in Drogheda with uh, the robbery uh, a robbery from a person that uh, occurred.
9: Uh, Yes uh, good morning. The Gardaí in Drogheda are investigating a robbery from the person which occurred at Cord Road Drogheda at 2.09am on Saturday morning last the 17th of August. The injured party in this incident was waiting for friends outside the licensed premises when he was approached by a male described as being in his 20s. The culprit placed his hands in the pocket of the injured party and after a brief struggle made off with of the injured party's mobile phone, described as a black Samsung J6. The culprit in this incident fled the scene in the direction of Oyster Lane, Drogheda, and the guardian Drogheda are anxious to speak with any persons who may have witnessed the incident or may have information to assist sister's investigation. Uh, to contact them or, indeed, the Garda Confidential Line can be utilised on 1800 666 OK,
2: and I gather that there were probably a, a lot of people in the area at that time, given the event that was taking place. Uh, that was uh, just after 2 o'clock in the morning on Friday night, wasn't yeah, it?
9: Yeah, o- mm-hmm. 2.09am mm-hmm. on Cord Road.
2: OK, we go to Laytown now, where Garda are investigating a burglary.
9: A guardian laytown are investigating a burglary which occurred at Alderwood Veterinary Clinic, Stumullen, at approximately 4.15am on Saturday morning last, again the 17th of August. During the course of this incident, a window to the premises was damaged, and entry gained through same. A small amount of cash and a laptop were reported as stolen during the course of the incident. The guardian laytown would appreciate any information which could assist him in their investigation and again the guardian confidential line can be utilised on 1800 666
2: 111. Okay, we've uh, a number of thefts uh, to report on. Uh, the first of uh, these uh, was a theft from an MPV. This uh, occurred in Navan on Friday.
9: Guardian Navan are investigating a theft from a vehicle which occurred on Saturday last, the 17th of August, between 1am and 8:30am at Quarry Road, Ardbracken Navan. Now, this incident is unusual in that the front bumper of a silver Mitsubishi Shogun van was stolen, having been removed from the park vehicle. Again, a silver Mitsubishi Shogun van, silver in colour, was removed from the park vehicle. Any persons who are in a position to assist Garda in the recovery of the stolen property, or indeed who may have witnessed the incident, are urged to contact Garda station. Okay, somewhat similar story then from Carlingford. Uh, Yes, the Guardian Carlingford are investigating again a theft from a parked vehicle which occurred last Wednesday, the 14th of August, between 7.30pm and 8pm. The injured party in this case parked his vehicle, a red Audi A4, at St Michael's Church in Carlingford while attending Mass. On his return to his vehicle, he discovered that the rear passenger window had been broken and a briefcase uh, containing documents and three coats had been stolen from the vehicle. Any persons who can assist the Garda in their investigation or the recovery of the stolen property are requested to contact Carlingford Garda Station or the Garda Confidential Line again on 1800 666
2: 111. All right, we've got a theft from a person, another theft from a person that occurred in Drogheda. This particular incident was on Thursday of last week.
9: Yes, Michael, again, the Guardian and are investigating a theft from the person which occurred on Friday last, the 16th of August, at approximately 11pm on Patrick Street, Drogheda. A female was walking on Patrick Street, uh, where she was approached from behind by a male who snatched her handbag, causing her to fall to the ground. The culprit made off uh, from the scene with the stolen handbag, which is described as being leather and grey in colour, containing a white Nokia mobile phone and a quantity of cash. The Guardian Drado would be anxious to speak with any persons who could assist their investigation in identifying the culprit, or indeed in the recovery of the stolen property.
2: Indeed, and that was Friday, uh, not Thursday, as I incorrectly said a, a moment ago. Uh, we go to Oldcastle now, and an assault which uh, Guardian are investigating there.
9: Guardian Oldcastle are investigating an assault incident which occurred last Wednesday, the 14th of August, at approximately 5 p.m. at Lockcrew in Oldcastle. It is reported that following a road traffic incident, the injured party was assaulted by another male receiving a headbutt to the face, resulting in facial injuries which required medical attention. The suspect in this incident is reported as having left the scene in a grey-blue BMW. Guardian Oldcastle would appreciate any information which, are consistent, which could assist their investigation. And again, the Garda Confidential Line can be utilised on 1800
2: 666 111. OK, and we'll conclude the report in Navin this week and uh, robbery from a person.
9: Yes, finally, Michael, the Guardian Navan are investigating a robbery from the person which occurred on Thursday last, the 15th of August at approximately 10.15pm. The female injured party in this case was walking at Moath Ma- Manor, Navon, where she was approached by a male who threatened her with a knife and demanded that she hand over her handbag prior to leaving the scene on foot. Gardie recovered the stolen handbag during a follow-up search of the surrounding area, but two mobile phones are still outstanding, described as being an iPhone 6 and a Nokia. Navan Gardy would welcome any information from the public which could assist her investigation. And again, finally, the Garda Confidential Line can be utilised in relation to any of these incidents on 1800 666
2: Sergeant Tony Ward of Garda Station, thank you very much indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, in the couple of minutes that we have left for you today, let's go back to you and some more of uh, the calls that have been coming to us uh, this morning. You have some more comments there really. I have
5: indeed, Michael, a text from a listener just in relation to the parking fines and parking in generally Mm. says that feels that more should be done about tackling cars parking on footpaths I saw a man in a wheelchair could not get around the footpaths because of the amount of parking on them In or in the states around the area, Mm. uh, and says that if emergency services have to be called, there could also be an issue because of the volume of cars parking in in some areas. Mm. Uh, Another listener wants to know where does the money go for parking fines? Is it back to the local roads in the Mm. area?
2: Yeah, well, I don't know. That was, I mean, that was a question that I was asking, (laughs) but I don't know the answer. And uh, I don't think David Lynch of uh, the Dundalk Democrat had that information from the documents he received, but I think. I think it's a, an interesting question, as we were saying, given how much you pay in tax, whether that's tax on fuel or your motor tax, as the case may be.
5: Um, Colette phoned in and Colette just wants to make a point in relation to pay parking. Mm. She feels that with so many retail outlets now on the outskirts of big towns with free parking, that it's putting people off going into the town and she thinks that the council should be looking at the broader picture here because a lot of towns are losing business in the centre Mm. of towns and she thinks that there could be some kind of initiative to try and encourage people parking although... Uh, she, you know parking yeah. and shopping in the town although she did mm. say she understood the point that you made Michael in relation to that you'd have people maybe parking all day yeah. in the case of free car mm. parking.
2: Well we saw it didn't we I mean she's right uh, it's very convenient and very hard to resist it because it's cheap but it leads to the death of the town centres and that if people go out to the retail parks but when it was free in Drogheda we saw mm. people finding it very difficult to get parking
5: Declan wonders, what's the point in issuing parking fines if they don't follow up on them? <laughs> well, well, that's, <laughs> that's yeah, a good question. Yeah, good question. a good there.
2: question. I, I think uh, the Democrats uh, seem to feel that uh, a lot of people maybe parked in Dundalk and then went home to Newry, so you couldn't prosecute them.
5: On the issue of insurance, Michael, and uh, Tom phoned from Dundalk and he feels that it's typical Irish beating around the bush on the insurance debacle. Says that you have many uh, companies, solicitors, and that openly advertising for people to make injury claims. And wonders, has this had a lot to do with the compo culture as well?
2: Maybe so. Maybe so. Um, mm. Just have
5: we time for another one? Yes, after? absolutely. Yeah. Just mm. on uh, Brexit. Uh, mm. And uh, we had a caller in touch. Just to say, Michael, you mentioned there that October 31st is the next deadline. Yeah. And this listener just wants to know. Should our government still be on holidays when this is around the corner? And should they not be doing what they can at the moment to try and prevent a hard border? Well,
2: yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm sure the stock answer is uh, that the doll may be in recess but the politicians are not on holidays. They're all working very hard Uh, and indeed the Taoiseach was of course speaking with Mr Johnson uh, for an hour last night and uh, undoubtedly a lot of ground was covered in that and uh, part of that was planning for this meeting which is to take place in Dublin in September. But uh, I'm sure a lot of people would agree with uh, the thrust of what was being said there. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch. And uh, before we leave you, let me remind you that if you'd like to listen back to today's programme, there'll be a podcast of it available on our website, lmfm.ie. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the Control Tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on
1: LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye